This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Karl Barth was arguably the most influential Reformed theologian of the 20th century. That's not to say that he was the most orthodox or the most helpful, but it's not possible to understand the state of Reformed theology today without some attention to Karl Barth. So we're fortunate to have with us today on Office Hours, Dr. Ryan Glomsrud, Associate Professor of Historical Theology at Westminster Seminary, California. He earned his DPhil at Oxford University with a study on BART, and he just completed a postdoctoral fellowship at Harvard University. He's a graduate of Westminster Seminary, California in 2004 and a graduate of Wheaton College. He's also executive editor of Modern Reformation Magazine and contributor to Engaging with BART and also a contributor to Always Reformed, Essays in Honor of W. Robert Godfrey. As always, these volumes and more are available in the bookstore at wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Ryan, and welcome to Westminster Seminary, California, and to Office Hours. Hi, thanks. It's good to be here. First of all, let's let the listener get to know you a little bit. You may have read some of your work in Modern Reformation magazine and on the Modern Reformation or Whitehorse websites and blogs, but uh, he might not know a lot about your background. From where do you come and how did you get here? Well, I'm from uh, Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota, I guess the Twin Cities, the suburbs, born and raised there, grew up as most Scandinavians in a ELCA Lutheran church. And although I guess I was really baptized at ELCA Lutheran and spent most of my young years in a PCUSA, a mainline church. Went to school in Minneapolis at a, a Swedish Covenant high school where, I guess as a Norwegian, I was what would count as diversity. It was uh, <laughs> uh-huh. Actually, uh, some of my good friends from high school also came with me all the way through. Uh, through we, we went to college together and then went off to Westminster Seminary. Were you part of an oppressed minority? Uh, yes, I guess. <laughs> there was a few Germans, too. Okay. Uh, okay. And... Uh, you went off to Wheaton College as an evangelical in the Swedish-Norwegian pietist tradition? No, not really. We eventually left the PCUSA church and went to, a, I guess, a big evangelical megachurch, an evangelical free church of America. You know, it wasn't the typical premillennial dispensationalist church. I guess it was really more the megachurches of the 1980s and 90s. I guess we were, we were really more into spiritual warfare with the Frank Peretti novels and Neil Anderson, that, that sort of thing. No, I, uh, in eighth grade, seventh and eighth grade, somewhere in there in junior high, I started attending a Bible study with, with some friends of mine, and, and we became avid R.C. Sproul fans. I read The Holiness of God by Sproul. Actually, we, we even listened to the video series as well and, and some John Gerstner videos. And uh, that was sort of my introduction to Calvinism, really. And we turned out to be, I guess, sort of dorky in, in high school and college. Uh, <laughs> Not many eighth graders are sitting around reading R.C. Sproul. No, it gets worse, though. I mean, we, were, we went to Florida for spring break three or four years in a row, but not to the MTV thing. We went to the Ligonier uh, National Conferences. Actually, that's where I, I first heard of Mike Horton and Bob Godfrey and, and Westminster Seminary was, I think, eighth or ninth grade at some of the Sproul Conferences. So, so you, you've been aiming at this place for a long time. <laughs> well, no, not really. I went off to Wheaton and studied theology and, and was sort of a 
I guess what you'd call now a, a young Russellson Reformed type. I mean, I actually attended uh, Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, where uh, John Piper's the pastor, and had the Banner of Truth, the uh, collected works, Jonathan Edwards. And I didn't always read Edwards for fun, but I did take a few college seminar courses in Edwards, and the religious affections was sort of part of my theological diet, I guess, in college. And at some point in college, my supervisor in the philosophy department had sort of studied theology and philosophy and did a history minor. Uh, his name was Mark Talbot, and he was the executive editor of Modern Reformation at the time. And so there was sort of yet another connection to Westminster. And then I do distinctly remember a conference across the street from Wheaton College is the College Church, sort of non-denominational, very Calvinistic, and they always put together great conferences. And I, I can remember Howell Jones coming to do a conference, and, and he was there with Sinclair Ferguson and Eric Alexander and Alistair Bank. Actually, it was a, it's an unusual conference, and there weren't any Americans. And then a few years later, as a senior, Dave Van Drun and, and, and Daryl Hart came to Wheaton to I don't know if they were there for recruiting or what they were there for, but they took me out to lunch with my college roommate at the time, Ryan Crone. Another one of our— Yeah, they sold us on the seminary, so we came out the next year, and Ryan's now a, a URC minister. Talk about your time here at Westminster Seminary, California. You, so you graduate from Wheaton, and you decide to go to seminary, and you decided to come to California. Why, and what happened to you while you were here? Well, I thought about going to a few other— kind of popular options, you know, Gordon-Conwell and, and Trinity and, and everything else. But I came out and visited and sat and had a little chat with President Godfrey. And that, among other things, I think won me over. Plus, I could also rent an apartment and live on my own instead of in a student housing thing <laughs> at the time. That, that seemed like a big deal. But I loved my experience here. It sort of flung wide the doors, I guess, of Reformed theology. As I mentioned, I, you know, I'd read Edwards and some Augustine and, and sort of grounded to a certain extent in the doctrines of faith. But having not been raised in a Reformed church, I'd never really been properly catechized. So for me, the seminary experience was about that process, just being introduced to the doctrine of justification. Uh, as a student at Wheaton, that, that was one of the real hot-button controversies at the time. Here I was at Westminster, you know, learning about Scripture, justification by faith, my very first introduction to covenant theology. Um, I did the historical theology degree, so there was a historical grounding to it all. So as I think about it now, my time at Westminster was really the first encounter with Reformed church life. You know, I'd attended church my whole life and grown up in a, in a Christian family, but never been a member of a church surprisingly. We'd left the Lutheran church, so it was never confirmed or anything like that as you would do in the Lutheran tradition. So this was the first time, the first place where I really encountered Reformed ecclesiology and, and just the regular worshiping life of the church, the Lord's Day, morning and evening worship services. And that, more than anything, kind of woke me up to the richness of the Reformed tradition. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. You spent two years at Harvard doing a postdoc, and you're still a Christian. Explain how that happened, and why is that funny? <laughs> well, Harvard is a really interesting place, and certainly has more diversity than uh, the Swedish Covenant High School I went to. And that's actually a great thing, you know, expanding one's horizons, just encountering people who are not only deeply immersed in their own different, very different theological traditions in most cases, but also people who are just genuinely wandering and sort of aimless and, and searching and questioning. So it actually is a really, really exciting place to be. 
While I was finishing my doctoral dissertation, I guess, from Oxford, I was an academic visitor in the Divinity School and really enjoyed the kind of interest in religion and politics and theology and social theory. And uh, then since after graduating, have sort of migrated over to the history department. There's a long tradition at Harvard of intellectual history. And I was amazed and continued to be uh, really kind of overwhelmed by the variety of seminars and the variety of scholars working on religious topics, theological topics. That's the sort of the best thing of a really good program in intellectual history, right? to, to hear and uh, meet with a Jewish student who's working on Johannes Coxeus and biblical interpretation and the Reformed and Lutheran traditions and how they understood the, the Old Testament. That kind of thing is not at all uncommon. I really enjoyed that. You know, the Divinity School is Unitarian, and so that makes things interesting. But I've really enjoyed it. And there's a good, solid, long gospel preaching uh, PCA church just uh, a few blocks down from Harvard. So that's certainly helped uh, keep things normal. In some of the historical seminars in which you've participated, you've had opportunity to give expression to or to mediate to them some of the historical work you did not only during your doctoral research in the UK, but some of the historical work that you did here, some of the methods that you picked up here, and you were able to introduce some of what you learned here and some of the methods you learned here to that setting. Talk about that. How did that go over? Yeah. Well, one of the probably more interesting seminars I've participated in is an intellectual, early modern intellectual history, mostly French and German. It's been fascinating for me to see Someone like Richard Muller's work, who I regard very highly, to be on all of the reading lists at a place like that. And a number of students actually read Muller and sort of take him seriously. And yet, just because of other interests, a sort of historical, theological um, component has been sort of underrepresented in the history department, I should say. So I have enjoyed kind of trying to make the case that goes far beyond just Richard Muller's scholarship to kind of uh, chip away at the Calvin against the Calvinist uh, thesis. Perry Miller was at Harvard in, in the history department and is one of those kind of forerunners in intellectual history. So the fact that there are people who you know no longer think very highly of the Calvinists, it, it gives me a lot of encouragement that some of the scholarship that you've been a part of and I'm hopefully contributing to as well is actually making its way into the mainstream. At the outset of the program, I said that Karl Barth is one of the most important, if not the most important and influential theologians of the 20th century. So, Ryan, if Karl Barth was perhaps the most important Reformed theologian of the 20th century, the listener may not be intimately familiar with him and who he was. So quickly, give us a thumbnail sketch of who was Karl Barth. When did he live, where, and when did he die? In the 17th century, John Bunyan gave us the character Mr. Valiant for Truth. In the 20th century, God gave us another Mr. Valiant for Truth, J. Gresson Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary. The spirit of Machen lives on at Westminster Seminary, California, where for 30 years we've been fulfilling his vision of preparing men for ministry and teaching them to be expert in the Bible. WSCAL.edu, 888 480 8474, Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Well, Bart was uh, born in the 19th century and died in the middle of the 20th century. He probably was more famous in the 50s and 60s. He actually made it even onto the cover of Time magazine in the 60s. I've got a nice little uh, picture of that on my office wall. <laughs> So your son is going to grow up 
looking at a picture of Carl Bird. Is that what you're telling us? Yes. I, I, he loves it already. In any case, he's a remarkably fascinating character, wrote lots of letters, had a strong personality and, and a sharp wit, was humorous, and uh, had a way of making disciples of the doctoral students who would come from all across Europe to study uh, with him in Basel. But Including some American evangelicals, right? Yeah, a number of them. So he was, he was Swiss, born in Basel, did most of his formative theological training in Germany, then returned to a small mining village as a pastor. He did his internship in Geneva, actually, and preached in Calvin's pulpit in, in 1911. But after uh, writing a very famous commentary on the Book of Romans as a young pastor, a fiery pastor, I should say, at the end of the First World War, he uh, was on his way to becoming a very public critic of Protestant liberalism and the Protestant establishment. And through various channels wound up as the uh, honorary professor of Reformed Theology at the University of Göttingen uh, in Germany and had a, a teaching career in Germany at a couple of different universities until after Hitler's rise to power and National Socialism, at which point he was deported back to, to Switzerland. Lucky for him, I guess, that he was a Swiss. Some of his other colleagues, he was part of the Confessing Church Movement, the group of Lutheran Reformed and some Prussian Union churches that were a combination of Lutherans and Reformed who resisted the Nazification of the German church. And people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer was an acquaintance and colleague of Bart and Martin Niemöller, who was a Prussian submarine commander, a fiery Lutheran pastor. So in Germany, because of you know Bonhoeffer's heroic resistance, he's certainly become more famous for the story of the Confessing Church in World War II. But Bart was very much a part of that and helped author the, the Barman Declaration and immediately after the war, returned to Germany on occasion to try to help rebuild the university system there and lecture, but taught the rest of his life at the University of Basel and wrote a huge multi-volume systematic theology that's filled with small print, fine print excrecies on historical theology. And so he's interesting for so many different reasons, but my own personal interest is in those small print excrecies in the church dogmatics where you find him weighing in on inference, superlapsarianism, and Reformed Christology, and, and uh, the communicatio idiomatum, and all, all kinds of little details that are just rarely discussed in 20th century theology. So he's definitely a towering, massive figure. Okay, Ryan, for many people, Karl Barth is the modern Reformed theologian. And so I have this question for you. Was Karl Barth Reformed? Well, when you put it really directly like that, any kind of answer I give yes and no is likely to cause all kinds of controversy in bard circles, which is a lot of fun. I think it's sort of good for scholarship to have a few antagonists uh, in the midst. Although hopefully I, I'm trying to be more constructive in my take on Bart. You know, the question is really more broad than was Bart reformed? I mean, most people who study 20th century theology, at least early 20th century theology, where we can sort of take a more historical approach don't often consider what theological tradition someone comes from. The fact that Boltmann was Lutheran or Harnack was Lutheran or something is of very little consequence. So it's interesting just in and of itself that people do think of art as Reformed. But, you know, more typically, it's kind of a controversy about to whom does Bart really belong? It's more of a conservative versus liberal thing, and he doesn't fit very comfortably in either camp. To the extent that conservatives appreciate Bart, it's because there's kind of a, an enemy of my enemy is my friend phenomenon. And so Bart, as the great critic of Friedrich Schleiermacher and Protestant liberalism, is to be regarded as an ally of sorts, although carefully regarded as an ally of sorts, because he's still sort of too liberal on Scripture, for instance, which has sort of been the touchstone 
point of controversy for most evangelicals. But then to other liberals, Bart's way too conservative on scripture in that he was ambivalent about higher criticism, for example. So, you know, to whom do Bart, does Bart belong has not always been an easy thing. He's not necessarily conservative, not necessarily liberal. And so that's been kind of a question that's plagued Bart scholarship because people haven't always distinguished between taking a historical approach to Bart and taking a constructive theological, you know, standing on Bart's shoulders to do theology today. And so Bart's theological identity has been controversial for all those reasons. Actually, I mean, I think he knew this right from the very beginning. And even more lightheartedly, he and his friend Martin Niemöller, although I wouldn't say they were friends exactly, but more acquaintances, they posed a version of this question along the lines of smoking preferences. Have you ever heard this story of uh, Martin Niemöller? They kind of asked, you know, who— are you conservative or liberal? Well, what do you smoke? Liberals smoke cigarettes, of course. And they were both convinced that conservatives smoked cigars, <laughs> which which uh, turns out may be true. But they were dialectical, or at least Bart was dialectical. Therefore, he was a pipe smoker. So <laughs> he kind of threw himself off. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Well, here we are at Westminster Seminary, and we are in some ways the children of Cornelius Ventil, who wrote perhaps one of the most scathing and foundational criticisms of Karl Barth in the 20th century, the New Modernism, in which he attacked Barth as not being Reformed in many respects and attacked him as being a modernist posing or passing himself off as a genuinely Reformed theologian. And since Van Til, there's been a movement among evangelical and in some parts of the Reformed world, but certainly among evangelical readers of Bart, to treat him as if he were one of them. Uh, sort of, you know, Bart said famously in 1968, or at least is thought to have said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And people take that as their starting point and as the summary of Bart's theology, and so he's treated as if he were just another Bible-believing Swiss, you know, Reformed theologian. And so you've got, on the one hand, a sort of uncritical, naive reading of Bart in some ways, and then with Van Til, you had a very hostile reading of Bart, and then Burkhauer sort of in the middle, and you've made an interesting stimulating and provocative and even controversial argument about Bart's relation to the tradition and Bart's view of Scripture. So how do you come out on all of this? Well, Van Til certainly was a sharp critic, and it is interesting that, at least in his general outline, some of the things that he said to Bart, you know, have some resemblance to the current model for understanding Bart's development, that he developed one theological insight throughout his whole career. And so... There's not a sharp break between an early Bart and a later Bart. And, and Van Til was onto these things. And I think we should appreciate that Van Til was a very early reader of Bart, as was Machen, actually. And, you know, reading Bart in German. And, and so he's to be commended for that. You know, And some of the details, he, he might not have gotten Bart quite right. But I think what he did helpfully draw everyone's attention to are the major theological loci with which Bart took issue with the tradition whether it's predestination, inference superlapsarianism, Trinitarian understandings of the imminent and economic trinities, Christology and baptism, of course, the sacraments, we could go on. So 
Well, evangelicals have tended to focus on Bart on Scripture almost exclusively. You know, Van Til sort of opened up the critique to much broader, you know, all theological topics, uh, which I think is helpful. What I try to do, though, is I may or may not have been successful in doing this, but to try to disarm Bart's scholarship to a certain extent by taking a more of a historical approach. You know, I'm happy to weigh in theologically on where I would take issue with Bart. You know, did Bart subscribe theologically to the Reformed Confessions? Well, no. And so if we're working with a, you know, a sharp historical understanding of what the Reformed tradition is and, and it's the confessional nature of the tradition, then, you know, there are places where Bart has his differences. But what I want to do is try to place Bart more in relationship to turn-of-the-century pietism, to Swiss and German pietism, and to talk about ways in which Bart was Calvinistic, certainly Augustinian. You know, there are places where even Van Til says, you know, you'd think by the words that he uses that he's a Calvinist. And uh, Bart did a remarkable job of bringing theological themes, vocabulary, concepts from the Reformed tradition to bear in a critique on Protestant liberalism and then to construct his own, you know, massive multi-volume uh, systematic theology. So what I try to do is get at the sources that Bart was using and some of the influences on Bart. But, you know, yeah, influence is notoriously difficult to pin down. And so I'm interested in the late 19th century mediating tradition, it's sometimes called, Bart's use of Heinrich Heppe and Alexander Schweitzer. And also through Bart's father, his, you know, upbringing in pietistic tradition. So people like Johann Tobias Beck and Blumhartz. There's a whole host of sort of Calvinistic, you might call them, pietist theologians with whom Bart was familiar. And to a certain extent, someone like Bruce McCormick has incorporated that prehistory into his take on Bart and has been very helpful. But we need more of that. So I'm trying to just scratch the surface of how we place Bart into the history of 20th century theology. Instead of having this debate about conservative versus liberal, I do think that the categories of confessional and pietists are actually, you know, more helpful. Some would accuse me of, you know, bringing my own theological biases to bear, but I try to stop short of making the theological argument about Bart's Reformed identity and approach it more of in a descriptive and, and historical way to try to tell the story that hasn't been really told all that well. The title of your chapter in Always Reformed is Karl Bart and Modern Protestantism, the Radical Impulse. So if the listener wants to know more about this, you can see it in, in that volume, Always Reformed, at the bookstore, wscal.edu slash bookstore. You can order the volume there. A lot of us have done our academic work and spent our professional lives studying older elements in the Reformed tradition, 16th and 17th century theologians, texts, and movements. But you've concentrated on Bart and, more broadly, modern theology. What's the value of studying modern theology? Well, you could choose any of the eras of Christian history, and they're all important for similar reasons. Modern theology is definitely a time when theology as a discipline outsourced many of its methods and even sometimes its objects of study to other disciplines. And so, you know, by nature, it becomes a kind of interdisciplinary endeavor, the study of, of the history of modern theology. And, and I like it for that reasons, although for a whole variety of reasons, a historical core to a seminary curriculum is really crucial. And I think even Machen certainly knew that and even spoke of history in a couple of different ways in his convocation lecture. 
to launch Westminster Seminary. He talked about the need to study history as a kind of inoculation, really, to make us less enthusiastic about modernity. But beyond that, Machen had a real pastoral sensibility, I think, and encouraged his students to have that pastoral sensibility while they study history, to learn that the church has often gone through dark times and that God has brought the church through. And sometimes, I think the way Machen puts it, it sometimes seems the darkest just before the dawn you know, breaks out. And that's certainly something we can learn from the history of modern theology, although it really does hold true for all the time periods. And then finally, uh, we wouldn't be uh, Machen's warrior children without talking about Machen's kind of call to arms. And it's especially historical study in the modern era that can really bolster our confidence in, in the Reformed tradition and also say that, you know, the light won't break forth unless we take up the defense of the faith. Historical study is certainly part of that preparation to actually know what kind of theological ideas are floating out there in our modern world. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.